The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, we uh, just barely got started dealing with the uh, problem of um, the evidence in the early second century, and I was uh, I was just trying to. Uh, communicate to you how significant it is in the examination of this evidence to keep in mind the way in which one's perspective affects the evaluation of that data. Um, again, remember the uh, the very rationale for the approach that we have taken in, in this part of the course, namely to uh, look carefully at the end of the second century because that is the earliest period for which, for which we have clear and concrete information. That means that as we move back to the first half of the second century, the information is not as, as clear or as, or as explicit or as full, and therefore, how much weight or what kind of weight you put on that material is going to depend on uh, your prior consideration of uh, what is the most likely scenario. So, if you come to this period thinking that lack that a lack of formal statements, that a lack of formal statements counts as lack of evidence. If that's, if that's your criterion, then obviously, I mean, I, you can figure this out even before you start looking at the material, you're going to end up with a fairly net negative conclusion because, because it is accepted on all sides that, that you do not have that kind of evidence or that kind of statement for the first half of the, of the second century. And so, if, again, if you look at uh, the book by Kampenhausen, I think it's page 103. It's the, the very first page in, uh, in the chapter that talks about the pre, uh, pre-canon shape or for some such title. And uh, that, that the title alone tells you that he thinks of this period as being prior to the recognition of the canon. And he tells you in so many words, there was no canon at this point. Or I, I think the way he puts it is, uh, there, there are no statements about the canon because the thing itself does not exist. Now, he says, I'll go on to prove that. But the only way he proves it is by showing what he has already told you, that there are no formal statements about the canon. And so he assumes that the lack of such statements means that there was no canon. But if, on the other hand, we give due weight to the earliest clear testimony, namely in the, sec- the, in the latter part of the second century, And then you ask the question, are the prior statements in the first half of the century, are those statements which we know are not formal, are not explicit, but are they in accordance with the later ones? Or do they contradict the later ones? If you ask the question that way, then I think your conclusion is going to be very positive because the material that we do have for the first part of the second century does not undermine at any, at any point what is said about the canon later in the second century. In other words, there is every reason to view the process as a rather natural one 
from the non-explicit statements in the first half because people were not asking those kinds of questions yet, you see, to the more self-conscious formulation of canonical issues in the second half of the century. And that's why I think I, I made the point that um, it is in dealing with this kind of material that you can see very clearly that, that you're dealing with a problem of uh, burden of proof, you see. Uh, this is so frequently what goes on when, when you find uh, scholars or whatever disagreeing on, uh, on the evaluation of data. So frequently this is what's going on. Consciously or unconsciously, each scholar is thinking that the burden of proof lies on the other person. So just, just to um, uh, expand on that a little bit, from my point of view, if I see clear evidence of the canon in the second century, at the end of the second century, and statements in the first century that are quite compatible with, with those, then from my perspective, uh, Kampenhausen has the burden of proof, you see, to show that there was no canon, uh, or no, uh, that the thing itself did not exist, as he puts it. And as far as I'm concerned, he cannot prove it, because Again, the, the data is, is not of that sort. From his point of view, you see, he assumes that uh, if you don't have formal statements, you don't have a canon. So he thinks I have the burden of proof to show some statement that says, you know, of, of the same type that you have at the end of the second century. Or another way of putting this whole thing is simply to acknowledge that the data for, for that period is ambiguous. It can be interpreted in more than one way. And therefore, there are other considerations, not the data as such, but other considerations that affect how people uh, treat that data. Now, let me um, uh, point something out, and that is, when we were dealing with the, with the last, with the second half of the second century, and I tried to demonstrate that there was this uh, remarkably, uh, I mean, striking agreement with regard to the bulk of the New Testament, and you need to understand that this is a, this is just, you know, generally accepted. Kampenhausen himself is very clear about it. In fact. Um, on page 327, page 327 of Kampenhausen, uh, here's a quotation. It is undisputed, undisputed, that both the Old New Testaments had, in essence, already reached their final form and significance around the year 200. So for him, this is not really a matter of debate that by the end of the second century, the Old New Testaments had, in essence, already reached their final form and significance. He goes on to say, the minor variations which still persist, you know, 2nd, 3rd John, 2nd Peter, uh, Shepherd of Hermas, whatever, the, the minor variations which still persist and are occasionally the subject of further discussion those, those variations coexist perfectly happily with the overriding conviction that Christians everywhere possess one and the same Bible. It's a very significant way of putting it. Uh, it is Kampenhausen's own historical description of what is going on in the church on the year 200. Christians everywhere have the conviction, the overriding conviction, that all of them have the same Bible. For the fundamental understanding of the canon, these variations are of no importance. So you see, this is a rather significant um, area of agreement, if you will, between what I'm telling you and what, what Kampenhausen is saying. So the question then is, are we dealing with a normal, uh, and natural process that led to this point of the year 200? Or are we dealing with some kind of uh, unnatural or 
revolutionary change, you see, that might have taken place around the middle of the second century? Well, the evidence uh, that we have to deal with, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time with because it's, you know, you've read it and you read some more of it. It's, uh, it's widely accessible. But let me just summarize a few uh, details here. The so-called gospel of truth, the gospel of truth, which uh, is dated about the year 140, maybe 140 to 145. This document was written prior to the condemnation of Marcion. So you cannot deal with this document as some kind of, of reaction against Marcion. In fact, the gospel of truth itself has you know, some more semi-Gnostic kinds of uh, uh, points of view. But it clearly uses the Gospels, the Epistles of Paul, Hebrews, and Revelation. No attempt is made, and this is very important now, this document doesn't try to prove or to demonstrate that it is valid to appeal to the Gospels or to Paul. In other words, the implication is that these writings already had enjoyed authority for some time. It doesn't make a lot of sense for the gospel of truth to make use and, and in some way appeal to the gospels and, and the letters of Paul and so on, unless the author of this document assumed that the readers would you know, connect with that understanding of the New Testament writings. Then when you come to Marcion himself, a little later, um, his basic understanding of the canon is you have the gospel and the apostle. Gospel and apostle. Now gospel for him meant the gospel of Luke, edited a little bit, and most of the letters of Paul would be the apostle. And again, when you ask the question, did Marcion... Uh, one night, couldn't sleep, had this brilliant idea, I'm going to create a canon. I'm caricaturing this, obviously. Uh, but what is more likely to have happened? Some, some kind of um, sudden idea about, um, hey, there is an Old Testament canon that Jews have. Maybe we ought to have one too. <coughs> or is a more reasonable explanation that what Marcin really is doing is trimming down something that already existed. Again, when I'm saying that it already existed, I'm not talking about a self-conscious, people have discussed this issue in the church, oh yes, we have a, a canon with these limits, but what I'm suggesting to you is that they are functioning with the assumption of a canon. Because it is the, 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 the central core of that New Testament, uh, New Testament documents that are providing the thought and the life for the church. And so it is their source of authority. If, if that is true, you see, and I think all the evidence points in that direction, then what Marcion is doing is, is kind of trimming down uh, what is already functioning as canon in the church. The next individual that is of importance to us is Justin, uh, so-called Justin Martyr, who died in the year 165, and who clearly uses uh, quite a few of the New Testament books in an authoritative fashion. Uh, Kampenhausen himself uh, points out that Justin is the first Orthodox father, to have a doctrine of scripture, that is to, to have formulated a clear understanding of scripture, and it is within that framework that he uh, uh, cites uh, New Testament books. Then you have uh, the book, the uh, letter of Second Clement, Second Clement, which uh, almost certainly was not written by the same person who wrote First Clement. Uh, this book, Second Clement, is usually dated around the year 150, and um, in this document, there's a quotation of Matthew 9, verse 13, 
I came not to call the righteous but sinners, you know. And uh, the, the, uh, the way it is phrased, it, it is obviously treated as scriptural. Another piece of information that is significant here, if you go at it from a liberal point of view, is the evidence of Second Peter. Now you see liberals um, understand, a lot of the critics understand Second Peter to have been written about this same time, about a, the year 150. Now, if you, if, you, if you assume that, uh, then you have to do justice to the fact that, that whoever wrote this book, here's a Christian writing in, in, uh, uh, under the assumed name of Peter or whatever, but he makes a reference to the letters of Paul, how some people twist the letters of Paul, as they do the other scriptures, as they do the other scriptures. Now, again, the point you see is that on the liberal dating of 2 Peter, you have about the middle of the 2nd century a very explicit assumption that the letters of Paul belong in the same category as Scripture. Is that something likely to have happened within two or three years or so after Marcion's uh, work and in reaction to him, or is it more reasonable to assume that uh, that's the way the church has been understanding the, the letters of Paul for quite a while? Now, if you do take a conservative dating for Second Peter prior to the year A.D. 70, uh, obviously that's going to have even greater weight uh, on uh, your whole conception of whether or not the early Christian church thought of the writings of Paul, at least, but also the Gospels, as uh, having some kind of scriptural authority. All right, so these are documents uh, produced around the, the very middle of the second century. But if we go back a little further now to the apostolic fathers, the, the, at least the core of them, first Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and so on, you have uh, quite a few explicit references to, to the New Testament. For example, 1 Clement, in chapter 47, there's brief chapters uh, in, in 1 Clement, but it is a letter to the Corinthian church. And in chapter 47, there are a number of explicit references to Paul's first letter uh, to Corinth. Both Ignatius and Polycarp, uh, by the way, Clement, remember, is writing about, about the year 95. Ignatius is writing, depending, there's some disagreement, but certainly no later than the year 117, probably earlier than that. Uh, Polycarp, a little later. And uh, both Ignatius and Polycarp make mention of, of letters that have been written by Paul to the people that they're now addressing. Uh, Polycarp makes uh, reference to 1 John chapter 4. You may remember that Polycarp claimed to have actually known uh, the Apostle John. And it is fairly plain that uh, the New Testament documents are being used pretty much the same way as they use the Old Testament writings. There's no obvious difference at all Another important point is that you see among these writers a self-distancing from the apostles in terms of authority and, and uh, privilege or whatever. For example, Polycarp in his letter to the Philippians, um, chapter 3, he makes the comment that he is unable, katakoluthenai, uh, which probably means something like to attain fully to the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul. Now, I don't think this is simply, you know, like, like a disciple modestly talking about, you know, my teachers. Who's I mean, this is obviously a, a category or uh, a position being recognized in terms of Paul as an apostle that uh, Polycarp distances himself from. And even Ignatius, 
who remember he thought rather highly of his office as an episcopos, as a bishop, refuses to impose commands in the way that Peter and Paul did. And then he gives the reason for that. This is in his letter to the Romans, chapter 4. Ekeinoi apostoloi ego katakritos. They were apostles, I am a condemned man. Ekeinoi eleutheroi ego de mechrinun dulas. They were free men, I, even until now, I am a slave. And um, in spite of, of the um, importance he gives to his own office as a bishop, he says there's a totally different uh, category that we're dealing with here when we're talking about the apostles like Peter and Paul. And in his letter to the Philadelphians, chapter 5, Ignatius juxtaposes the Gospels and the Apostles, on the one hand, with the prophets of the Old Testament. It is evident that he regards them as being on the same plane. Now, what, what do, do we do with all this? What conclusions should we fairly infer from, from this information? You see that there are no explicit comments about the canon. There is no self-conscious formulation of what may and may not be regarded as authoritative. Those were not questions that were, uh, they were facing. But the way in which they used the scriptures the New Testament scriptures, and the way in which those documents seem to function in the church lead us to an important conclusion. As Westcott puts it on page 59 of his book, the apostolic fathers illustrate alike the language and the doctrines of the New Testament. They prove that Christianity was Catholic or universal from the very start, from the very first. That is, uniting a variety of forms within the one faith. Uniting a variety of forms within the one faith. They show, that is the, the Apostolic Fathers' quotations show, that the great facts of the Gospel narrative and the substance of the Apostolic Letters formed the basis and molded the expression of the common creed. Repeat that. The, the way in which the apostolic fathers deal with the New Testament show, that shows that the great facts of the gospel narrative and the substance of the apostolic letters formed the basis and molded the expression of the common creed that there was a common commitment throughout the church in spite of many varieties of forms and that that commonality had been shaped by the teaching of the New Testament. That's what I meant earlier, you see, when I said that these writings, the Gospels and letters of Paul primarily, were functioning in a canonical way. They were regarded as the source of authority and therefore, they molded the thought and the life of the early Christians. Or to put it differently then, there is nothing, as far as I can see, there's nothing in this obscure early period that contradicts the clearer data from the later period. Now, as I mentioned, even though in the outline there's this little heading problem texts, uh, I don't want to take uh, the time to deal with those. It's not really all that relevant for, uh, for the purpose of, of this class. So I just want to go straight into the conclusions about um, the second century evidence. And here again, I want to uh, read a couple of things from Westcott because uh, it seems to me that he has the proper uh, perspective on this whole thing. This, is, this comes from... Um, concluding section, uh, begin with page 327. On page three, 327, as he summarizes all the data, 
he makes the point that the evidence is uh, uh, remarkable in terms of, of the extent. It's all over the place in the Mediterranean world. Then he says, the character of the evidence is no less striking than its extent. The allusions to scripture are perfectly natural. The quotations are prefaced by no apology or explanation. See, that's a critical issue. Um, that they are giving expression what is recognized naturally by the whole church. The language of the books used was so familiar as to have become part of the common dialect. And when men speak without any clear intimation that the opinions which they express are peculi peculiar to themselves, it is evident that they express the general judgment of their time. The various testimonies which have been collected thus unite in one, and that one is the general judgment of the church. This is further shown by the uniform tendency of the evidence. It is always imperfect. We don't have as much as we'd like to have, you see. But the different parts are always consistent. It is derived from men of the most different characters, and yet all that they say is strictly harmonious. Scarcely a fragment of the earliest Christian literature has been preserved, which does not contain some passing allusion to the apostolic writings. And yet, in all, there is no discrepancy. The influence of some common rule, see, that's what canon means. The influence of some common rule is the only natural explanation of this common consent. Nor is evidence altogether wanting to prove the existence of such a rule. The testimony of individuals is expressly confirmed by the testimony of churches. Two great versions were current in the East and West from the earliest times, and the canons which they exhibit agree with remarkable exactness with the scattered and casual notices of ecclesiastical writers. And their common contents constitute a canon of acknowledged books. And this agreement of independent writers is not limited to those who were members of the same Catholic Church. The evidence of heretics is even more full and clear. And when they differ from the common opinion, doctrinal and not historical objections occasion the difference. Again, that's extremely significant. The heretics you know, are acknowledging uh, the, the same basic books. When there is a difference, they don't tell you, oh, well, we happen to know on historical grounds that uh, you know, Paul was not the author of, of this letter or something like that. It's just that they had a different theological agenda and uh, it was on doctrinal grounds that they rejected certain books of the New Testament. Well, um, elsewhere Westcott puts, puts it this way, that the universal usage of the church at the end of, of, two, cent of two centuries must have been the result of a continuous custom and not of a revolution. Uh, he gives special value to the testimony of the ancient versions because they express not the point of view of one individual, but the way in which the whole church understood that common rule. Uh, they function as proof of the authority of the books which they contain, widespread, continuous, reaching to the utmost verge of our historic records. Well, that, I think, is the, uh, the character of the evidence. And um, um, I think it's important for you, on the one hand, to acknowledge that if we had nothing else but the scattered comments of the first half of the second century, that evidence would be ambiguous, could be taken more than one, one way. But when you put in the whole context of what was happening, from the first century, and we know how these writings were functioning for the apostles, and we'll get to that in just a moment, and then the clearer testimony at the end of the second century, um, it makes perfectly reasonable sense to argue that these books were indeed functioning as canonical documents for the church from its uh, inception. Well, any questions about the second century material before we go on to uh, theological reflection? Yeah. Yeah, I, it wouldn't be right to say that Marcion was well accepted. But I think, uh, I mean, he was condemned. Uh, no, his canon was. Con 
Uh, no, because what he was doing was, I would argue, he was trimming down what the, what the church as a whole accepted as authoritative. But your point is still correct, uh, at least in, in my estimation. Uh, if Marcion uh, was trying to uh, propagate his own teaching, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me that he would attempt to do that by imposing upon the church something that the church wasn't prepared to. So the very fact that he went at it this way, to my way of thinking, reflects something that was already going on in the church rather than a completely new idea. By the way, um, the reading, a couple of you have asked me about this, uh, from uh, Kummel's uh, Introduction to the New Testament. Uh, the um, pages that I have there, 475 to 510, are based on the third edition of this book, and apparently, I don't know whether the third edition is there at all, but uh, if you're getting a different edition, all you have to do is go to the table of contents and look for, I think it's part two, the canon of the New Testament, and just read, I think it's in the other editions, pages 330-something. Uh, so just read the section on canon in, in Kumo, and uh, the, the rationale for that reading is that Kumo represents, you know, non-evangelical mainstream understanding of, of the formation of the canon. I think it's important for you to uh, uh, have some appreciation for how, uh, you know, mainstream um, scholarship looks at this issue. All right, let's... Uh, move on to uh, the theological issues more directly. And um, by way of introduction, let me make a couple of uh, comments here. Historical criticism, which is what we have been doing now for the past uh, few days, historical criticism cannot provide a basis uh, for passing judgment on canonicity. That's what uh, some scholars, particularly in the 19th century, felt that they could do and should do. Uh, great uh, historian of doctrine, F.C. Bauer, argued along those lines that, um, you know, basically a, a historian is the one qualified to determine what is canonical and what is not canonical. And uh, I think, to put it mildly, that's a little bit presumptuous whether something is canonical or not, cannot, in the final analysis, be subject to uh, the work of historical scholars. Historical criticism does not really have the means to, to come to that sort of conclusion. On the other hand, you don't want to go to the other extreme and divorce the historical data from the question of canonicity or, you know, divorcing history from theology, if you will. See, I think both liberals and conservatives, if you, if you will, tend to do that sometimes. Ritterboss, in his uh, little book on uh, redemptive history, I think it's uh, page two or three, uh, makes this point that the fact that the canon was formed <coughs> only after a long ecclesiastical development, that fact, does not in itself necessarily have to be in conflict with the special authority to which uh, to the, special, the special authority the church ascribed to it. Uh, don't get these things mixed up. It is true that the church debated certain issues related to the canon for a long time. But uh, you must not assume that uh, that fact is necessarily in conflict with the authority which the church ascribed to it. What is of interest, he says, what is of interest in the light, what is, what is of interest is the light that the history of the canon has shed upon the church's recognition of the canon as Holy Scripture. In other words, historical criticism cannot determine for us what is or is not canonical, but it does shed very important light on the process. And that can be of help to us in reflecting on the significance of what we're dealing with here. 
What we need to do right now, you see, and this is partly what I have in mind when I speak about theological reflection, is that we have to ask the tough questions. How can we be sure anyway that we have the right canon? After all, uh, the historical review that we have um, conducted can be a little troublesome. Not until the fourth century do we have final stability on this matter, you know, with Athanasius' letter and so on. And even then, it's not absolutely complete because the Syrian, Syrian church continued to uh, discuss a few matters. Or Luther seems to raise the question again in, in some ways. Or consider the status of the so-called antilegomena. Uh, can we be sure that the church was right of when it included Second Peter and Hebrews, but it excluded First Clement or the Epistle of Barnabas. I mean, that's the historical fact. Those books, those four books and a few others, were being debated. They were on the fringes, if you will, historically speaking. And the fact that the church said, okay, Second Peter and Hebrews, uh-uh, First Clement and uh, Barnabas or whatever, can we be sure that that decision was right? How can we be certain that this was not merely the fallible decision of well-intentioned people? And then there's the other question that some people love to raise. Could some document be discovered yet? You know, maybe some Pauline letter that might have a claim to be included in the canon. Now, not surprisingly, uh, Christians have uh, searched for, you know, some foolproof criterion that uh, will settle the issue once and for all. And that uh, we do need to look at these possible criteria that have been raised. We have that, in a, in a, we'll get to it today, the so-called criteria for canonicity. And uh, you see, people have tried to, to focus to figure out which one of these is really going to settle the question once and for all so that I can feel better about this. But you see, behind these kinds of concerns lies the deeper problem of the canon's completeness. It is the very idea of a closed canon that gives rise to questions of this sort. And, uh, and so we'll have to address that issue more directly later on. But before we can even talk about the criteria for canonicity, I think uh, it is important to keep in mind, and we don't have time in this class, obviously, to uh, do an exegesis of all the relevant passages, but to remind ourselves of what the biblical material itself suggests to us. And so that's what I want to do, first of all, look at the biblical evidence and see what kind of... Um, of information, what kind of uh, approaches, whatever, uh, need to be taken into account as we're trying to, um, to look at the canon theologically in a responsible way. First of all, with regard to the Old Testament background, again, just a couple of, of very brief comments simply to remind ourselves uh, about the concept of prophecy as such, the concept of prophecy. Now you have a whole course on this, most of you, and you can get all the information at that point. But uh, the, the thing to keep in mind is that not only in the books that are usually denominated the prophets, but throughout scripture you have a concept of prophecy uh, in the sense of God speaking to his people through his chosen servants, the prophets. And uh, certainly, you know, Moses, David, and, and some of these individuals prior to the classical prophets speak with that sort, sort of authority. And uh, as I assume you realize, prophecy in this context does not mean, does not equal prediction. In, in popular use, 
to prophesy is to say something about the future. Well, saying something about the future was certainly part of what the prophets were doing, but that was not the uh, characteristic element of their ministry. And, uh, you know, you've heard the distinction between uh, um, foretelling and forthtelling. They were not just uh, foretelling, predicting the future. They were foretelling. They were spokesmen for God and uh, bringing the message of uh, both encouragement and rebuke. And in this context, you have to take into account the consistency with which the prophets introduced their message with phrases like, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. They are speaking in the name of God. They are claiming to be bringing uh, God's very word. Now, you see, you cannot adequately deal with, the, with questions about the canon, including whether the canon is close or not, unless you have an adequate understanding of prophecy and therefore inspiration, the concept of biblical authority, guiding what you have to say. You, you, in, in other words, it is the Old Testament material that already lays a certain foundation that uh, provides the kind of framework within which we can now begin to ask questions about the New Testament writings themselves. And, and you dare not uh, leave out of account that background that you have in the Old Testament. But then we move to the next stage, and that is Jesus' own ministry, and particular, particularly the way in which he related to the Old Testament writings, his use of the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> here again, you know, we just don't have the time to deal uh, with this. In the course of the Gospels, uh, there's a lot more um, attention given to the relevant passages here. <clears throat> but the problem, as you may know, is that according to some scholars, Jesus' ministry was characterized by, or at least included, a measure of criticism of the Old Testament. That uh, Jesus uh, makes some statements that appear to uh, distance himself from the Old Testament. The best known, of course, being the Sermon, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said of old, but I say unto you. Now, we talked about that briefly at the, uh, you know, way back, ages ago. And uh, I did try to communicate, although, again, it had to be in a very summary fashion, that what appears to be a polemic of Jesus against the Old Testament uh, was really uh, something quite different. There were statements directed at the Pharisaic misinterpretation uh, because of, of the way in which the Pharisees integrated their own traditions uh, the traditions of the elders into the reading of Scripture. And uh, therefore, Jesus introduces those antithetical statements in Matthew 5 with the statement, don't think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So it's almost as though Jesus is preparing you, saying, hey, don't, don't you draw false inferences from what I'm about to say. Uh, when I make these statements, you have heard it said of all, but I say to you, I am not setting this stuff aside. I am not condemning it. I am not destroying it. Quite the opposite. I am bringing it to fulfillment. And if anything, you need to understand those antitheses as a means of um, intensifying, intensifying the demands of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't say, you heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, do it as much as you want to. Uh, he intensifies the command. He, if anything, he makes things stricter. You see, And he calls attention to the heart and, and uh, to the internal commitment and not just to the outward uh, conduct. Besides, if you pay sufficient attention to the dialogues, you find that Jesus' polemic 
if anything, stresses the continuity between the Old Testament and Jesus, and Jesus. Because there appeared to be basic agreement between Jesus and the Pharisees on the question of, of the authority of the Old Testament. Therefore, Jesus can say to the Pharisees, it is written, assuming that he understands, that, that they understand what he's saying, and that to introduce something with those words is a way of saying, okay, here's God's authoritative statement on the subject. Jesus never <laughs> rebuked the rabbis for identifying the Old Testament with God's message. If anything, he chided them for not taking Scripture seriously. And he tells them, you err not knowing the Scriptures. Or uh, in John, uh, you know, search the Scriptures. And if you believe Moses, you would believe me. John chapter 5, the end. But, see, more fundamentally, you, you have to uh, really do justice to that statement in Matthew 5.17 that he came, that, that Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And, and this is absolutely essential for your understanding of canon. If we're dealing here with God's authoritative message to his people, and if Jesus is the one who fulfills, who brings to consummation the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, then Jesus, you see, becomes our primary key to canon. Not only Matthew 5.17, but also in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus uh, instructs his disciples, and he Tells, we're told that he went through the Torah and the Psalms and the writings, showing them that the Old Testament was talking about him all the time. Matthew, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, and also verses 44 to 47. The implications of all, of all these are tremendous. If, if, if Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that, bring, that means that he has brought God's final message to his people. That's really the thrust of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. A very, very important uh, statement there. God, who in many ways, in diverse forms and so on, spoke to the fathers through the prophets, has in these last days, now you see, in these last days it doesn't mean recently, you see. That, that's the prophetic formula for the last days. These are the last days, and in, in, in this context, he has spoken to us not in a fragmentary fashion, not through the prophets, but through his very son. So if these are the last days, and then there is this continuity, you see, there is continuity between, it's the same God speaking. God spoke this way then, he's speaking this way now. It was in a fragmentary fashion then, but now there's a certain completeness and coherence. He spoke through prophets then, but now he's spoken through his own son, as it is fitting and appropriate for the consummation of, of redemptive history and revelation. I mean, how could you put it more strongly than that in terms of placing the words of Jesus on a par with those of the Old Testament? Now, the problem, of course, is that Jesus himself didn't write anything, at least that we know of. And so this takes us to this next item in the, in the outline, the role of the apostles. The principle to keep in mind here is Jesus' Jesus authorizing of his apostles to speak in his name. Jesus authorizing of his apostles to speak in his name. Now, this is, I think, fairly clear already in Matthew 28, when in the Great Commission, Jesus prefaces his instruction by proclaiming himself the canon, if you will. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He is the source of authority, therefore he is canon. You see. 
And so I command you to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. Now, whenever you have these kinds of words of the apostles, you know, you want to avoid some, uh, some of these artificial distinctions when people say, well, was it to the apostles or was it to us? And I say it's artificial because you really cannot come up with a yes or no answer to these kinds of things. You have to recognize, on the one hand, the clearly distinctive role that the apostles are expected to play without assuming, therefore, that that has no relevance whatsoever for the church later on. But you don't want to make the opposite mistake and say, well, since it is for the church as a whole, then, therefore, uh, it is not applicable to the apostles in a, in a special way. Of course it was. Uh, the apostles were being authorized to speak in Jesus' name in a, in a, in a very distinctive way, in a truly unique fashion. And I think this, this comes out even more clearly in the Upper Room Discourse. In the Upper Room Discourse, in, say, in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus speaks to his disciples and tells them, I will send you another comforter, the Parakletos, and he will remind you of the things that I have taught you. Now you see, whom did he teach for a couple of years? It was the apostles. And the, and the Spirit will remind you of these things. Whom? The apostles. It was that special uh, apostolate that is in view. doesn't mean that Christians cannot, in a derived sense, speak about the Spirit reminding us of things in the Bible. Of course that's true. But you cannot lose uh, the focus, the historical focus here. He has been preparing these apostles. Now Jesus is about to leave. Not to worry, because I'm sending you another parakletos. And he will remind you of the things that I have taught you so that you can speak in my name. 